you would open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 1, we're going to cover a little bit of recap from last week. Uh, Pastor Brooks kicked off this series through Mark that will take us all the way to May 7th. Um, And we're studying really the second kind of two-thirds of Mark chapter 1. So go ahead and turn there to Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, we read this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Most scholars believe that Mark was the first gospel that was written and passed around to the Christian community. It was written very soon after the ascension of Jesus. Um, And this is the first instance that we read in scripture of this word, gospel. The gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's a few things to note here. One, uh, Mark is making the claim here that Jesus is the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just good news about anything. It's not good news for just a few people, but it's really good news about Jesus Christ, and he is that good news. Also, he says it's the beginning of the gospel. We're going to go back to this time and time again throughout this series, but that, from the very beginning, from the first two words, tells us a little bit about the theology of the book of Mark. Mark, who wrote this, as Peter dictated to him the firsthand life and witness of being one of Jesus' closest confidants, as Mark is writing this, he believes that the gospel is Jesus and that everything we're about to read about Jesus is part of the gospel. And not only that, but by saying the beginning, he's telling us that there's more about the gospel than we even read in the book of Mark. So he's already tipping his hand to show us that he is about to paint a picture for us of a complex view of the gospel that typically we don't think about when we hear the word gospel. So this word gospel, it may be something we've heard before. The word gospel, it simply just means good news. That's what it means. It's good news. Mark chapter 1, 21 through 22, we're going to look at this tonight. It says, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I don't know about you, but the term good news and authority is not always something I put together. Good news and authority is not something that is common in our culture. It's not common to just how we think about things. That authority and rules and an authority figure is good news. So what is Mark getting at here? And what does it tell us about Jesus that this is the beginning of the good news and Jesus is the good news and those that heard him teach for the first time came away thinking, this guy has authority that our other teachers do not. Ultimately, tonight, we're asking the question, how can authority equal good news? How can the authority of Jesus equal good news? Last week, Pastor Brooks talked to us about what the good news is, why it says the beginning of the gospel. He also talked to us about this guy, John the Baptist, who is Jesus's cousin, who prepared the way for Jesus to come. The Old Testament prophesied that a prophet would come that would prepare the hearts of the people for Jesus to come. And then Jesus himself and the New Testament writers say that Elijah, that prophet, has already come and it's John the Baptist. So John the Baptist comes preparing the way, preparing the people, 
telling people to repent and believe the gospel. And then Jesus comes and he says, this is the one I've been talking about. This is the good news that I've been talking about. Pastor Brooks also talked about the baptism of Jesus. John the Baptist baptizes Jesus and at Jesus' baptism, he hears a voice that says, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. This is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Tonight we read more about this. So look with me at Mark 1, 14 through 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus comes into Galilee and he continues this message that John was saying, but he adds this phrase, the time is fulfilled. So first we have to ask the question, why was John arrested? The reason that John was arrested is he was causing trouble. As we read the book of Mark and as you read the gospels, you'll see that one of the biggest things that they held against Jesus, they also held against John and that was they caused trouble. You'll see this in the book of Acts as the first century church starts to cause a lot of trouble as well. The reason they were causing trouble and the the way they were causing trouble is that they were breaking up the social and religious norms of their day. They were proclaiming a gospel that was not a Roman Empire gospel and was not a Jewish-centric religious gospel. It was new to their ears and it upset everyone. We'll see this as Jesus speaks. When Jesus speaks, people are perplexed. The religious people, the irreligious people, as they hear the words of Jesus, they're like, this guy has authority and we'll start to see that they really don't want to have anything to do with it. So John prepared the way and he he caused trouble in the Roman Empire. He caused trouble for the Jews, so he is arrested. And then Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. What does he mean by the time is fulfilled? I would love to spend the next 30 minutes going over the whole biblical idea of what he means by the time is fulfilled, but the kids are going to come up in 30 minutes and then the sermon's going to be over. So we're just going to have to take a couple of minutes here to take a look at what Jesus means when he says the time is fulfilled. Isaiah 42 from the Old Testament The prophecy in Isaiah 42 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This prophecy is saying that there is a Messiah that will come that will be the perfect Jew in their context, that will be the perfect man, the perfect human, the one who is fully God, fully man, who is always going to do the will of the Father. That's what Isaiah is prophesying. And he's going to bring justice and he's going to bring real peace. And we can see here in this language, he's also going to do it in a nonviolent way. He's going to lay down his life to bring forth justice. In the book of Daniel chapter 7, there's a prophecy that says that the son of man will come 
and he will conquer all nations through his life. In Mark chapter 2, verse 10 and 28, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, saying, I am the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah and in Daniel chapter 7. And in fact, there's a turning point in the book of Mark halfway through. It comes in Mark 8, 32. It's the very middle of the book of Mark, and it is also a change in the ministry of Jesus. We're going to see tonight, and we're going to see as we continue, something called the messianic secret, where he would tell people, don't tell anyone you've been healed. Don't tell anyone the demon's been released from you. Don't tell anyone what I just did for you. And the reasons for that are complex, and we're going to get into those. But then in Mark 8.32, he says, the Son of Man came to die to save many. And then from that point forward, Jesus and others call him most often the son of man. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. Then let's look ahead to the end of all things in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. When Jesus says that the time is fulfilled, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying those Old Testament prophecies have now come to pass in me, and I have now inaugurated the kingdom of God with man that will be fully consummated in Revelation 21, in this passage right here on the screen. He's saying the time is fulfilled, meaning the kingdom of God is now with man. This is the already kingdom. The kingdom is already here, but it is not fully consummated. The already, but the not yet kingdom. Jesus is saying this is just the beginning of the gospel. This is the beginning of the kingdom of God being with man. It's a new kingdom. It's a different kingdom than any kingdom that's ever existed. It's not the kingdom of the Jews from the Old Testament. It's not the Greeks or the Romans or the Assyrians or anyone else. It's the kingdom of God. So when he says the time is fulfilled, this is a little bit about what he means. And then what is his message? Repent and believe the gospel. Two things. Repent, believe. There's two parts to what Jesus says. This is what the gospel is. You need to repent and believe the gospel. First, repent. That means to turn from something else to something else. To turn away from one thing and turn to something else. That's what the word repent means. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You need to turn from going one way so you can go this way. And then what do you turn to? You turn to believing. Believing that the kingdom of God is at hand, believing that there's only one way to be right with God, believing that there is only one righteous person and it's Jesus. Turn from your old ways, believe. Believe that there's good news. Stop believing all the bad news. 
the kingdom of man, the kingdom of nations. Stop believing the bad news and turn and believe the good news. Look with me at Mark 1, 16 through 20, as now we're going to watch Jesus start to minister. Mark 1, 16, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebdi, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebdi in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. A couple of things to note here. What Jesus does for these first disciples is very unusual. They're going to begin to call him rabbi, which means teacher. They're going to begin to call him rabbi. But the way that rabbis found students was that students would go and start hanging out with a rabbi. And they would basically ask the rabbi if they could follow them. Here, the rabbi is going to the students and saying, you're not going to fish anymore. You're going to fish for men. You're going to come with me. And they follow him. Interestingly here, they leave their nets and they go. This is important because they threw the nets they're using, there's two different words for nets. We're going to see one in this story and one in another story. These nets, one person would throw them out. They were like six to eight feet in diameter. One person would throw them out, wait for fish to come into them, and then pull them in. Here, they throw their nets out. Jesus says, follow me, and they say, okay, and they just leave their nets. They leave, and they immediately follow Jesus. Verses 21 through 28, as we continue to see what Jesus does as he ministers. In summary, he heals a man with an unclean spirit. He tells this demonic presence that knows that he's Jesus of Nazareth to come out of this man. An unclean spirit convulsing and crying out with a loud voice came out of him and they were amazed. What is this, this new teaching with authority? In this we see that Jesus is the God of all creation, of all things. We read this peculiar note in verse 13 that we didn't really cover last week, but he goes off into the wilderness for 40 days and he's tempted by Satan. And then uh, he, ha- he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. He is the God of the angels. He is the God of the animals. He is the God of the spirit world. He is God of everything. We see, we're starting to see Jesus has authority over all things. He has authority over the spiritual world. Then in the next story, 29 through 34, we see that he has authority even over the physical world. In this story, in summary, he goes and he heals Peter, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, who is ill with a fever. He is told that she's sick. He comes and takes her hands and lifts her up and the fever left her. And then many more were brought to receive physical healing from Jesus. When it says he raised her up, it uses the same Greek word that the whole New Testament uses to describe the resurrection of Jesus. He is enacting the resurrection power to heal people's physical reality. 
In fact, as we continue to see Jesus heal people physically, the Mark is going to start using this word, and it's restored. Restored something to its previous state, but also a picture of the future healing and resurrection of the kingdom come. Jesus has authority over the physical world, and he is doing physical good for people, helping their station right here, right now, what's wrong with them physically, how they are lame physically. He is healing them with his resurrection power to make their life better and to give everyone a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. Verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. Jesus announces his ministry, and then he gets really busy helping people. Casting out demons, raising people from the dead, healing people, and then he gets up very early. He rises up early, while it's still dark. He went out to a desolate place, and he prayed. This brings up so many questions in my mind. Jesus is God, but he needs to go be with the Father and spend time in prayer? There's something that I learned during my sabbatical this spring, and one of the things that I'm really grateful that I learned is what rest looks like for me. I think it's an important thing for all of us to learn, and I had the privilege of learning what rest looks like for me. And one of the things that I found restful during my sabbatical was to go on very long hikes. I like going on hikes. I go on hikes myself. My family goes on hikes. I go on hikes with friends. But it's usually like under an hour. Well, I figured out that if I go on hikes that are over 90 minutes, which is a little over three miles for me, I start to really connect with the Lord. I've heard people talk about something called runner's high. I don't know what that is. I've never experienced that. I feel like I'm going to die when I run, but some people get this runner's high thing. I found out I get this hiker's high where I just start communicating with the Lord and hearing him communicate with me, and it feels like rest. It may be different for you. I mean, not be hiking. It may be something else, but what I learned from those is that What restfulness is, it's communion with God. It's whatever it looks like to commune with God, to hear from the Father, to remember that he speaks the same words over us that he spoke over Jesus. This is my beloved son or daughter. With them I am well pleased. Jesus takes time to commune with the Father. That means we probably need to as well. Verse 36, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next town, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Here, we see Jesus not live up to the expectations of the disciples. They're saying there's all these people and they're, they're looking for you, Jesus. They need you, Jesus. There's all these people to heal, all these people to pray for, all of these people to touch, all these demons to cast out. And Jesus says, I'm going to move on to the next town. And he says, this is the reason that I came out. In the original Greek, a better understanding of what he says here is this is why I came. This is why I came to earth to begin with. 
In fact, it's what he tells Pilate when he stands before him when he's arrested. The Gospel of John tells it this way, for this purpose I was born and this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus had a mission and he came not just for one group of people, not just for the Jews, but he came to share the good news of who God is and show what the kingdom of God is like all over the known world. Lastly, the last little vignette we get here is in verse 40. And a leper came to him imploring him and kneeling and said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and he began to talk freely about him and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter." Here in this story of Jesus cleansing the leper, we see Jesus do three amazing things. First, Jesus touches a leper. Leprosy was a skin disease that they believed that if you touched it, you could get it yourself. And if you had leprosy in the first century, you were as good as dead. The historian Josephus from the first century said that those with leprosy were called walking corpses. They would yell unclean as they walked through town and everyone would just leave them alone until they died. And Jesus touches. This is dangerous for Jesus in two ways. The first is it's physically dangerous to touch someone with leprosy. But also as a Jew, the Old Testament said that he would now be ceremonially unclean. He would be unclean, unfit to worship God if he touched something that was unclean. Yet Jesus touches him anyway. Not only does he touch him, but his touch heals the man of his leprosy. Once again, Jesus has authority over the physical world. And then he does something peculiar. He sends him for purification. He says, go to the temple and be purified by the priest so you're no longer ceremonially unclean. This restores this man to his community because he no longer has leprosy, but he's not right with his community. But Jesus sends him and says, be restored to your community. Be made right with your community. Jesus shows great compassion as well as power and authority and the healing of this leper. So the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, John prepares the way, Jesus says the time is fulfilled, and then we see these vignettes of Jesus showing his authority over the physical world, over the spiritual world. We see his compassion in touching, restoring, raising up people from their deathbed. What do we learn as we see these beginnings of the ministry of Jesus? First, Jesus has authority. Jesus has the authority. He has authority for four reasons. First, his authority is given to him by the Father. If a human says, 
I'm an authority and you should listen to me. There may have been a time in history and in some cultures that meant something. We are not in that culture or that time anymore. I said a few weeks ago that I don't lead when I meet someone with, hey, I'm a pastor. It's because authority figures or the idea of authority or if the more you say, I'm an authority, you should listen to me, the less we want to listen to them. That's just where we're at. That's where we're at in our culture and in our world. Jesus doesn't have authority because he says I have authority and you should listen to me. He has authority because at his baptism, the father said, this is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. Jesus's authority is given by God, the heavenly father, the creator of all things. Second, Jesus has authority because of his moral perfection. Jesus always did the will of the father. Jesus always did what the Father required. Jesus always did what honored God and what loved his neighbor. Jesus sums up the Old Testament law by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and he did it. He said, this is how to follow the law, and then he actually did it. He was the perfect one. He was the pure one. He was the spotless lamb that's prophesied about in the Old Testament. So Jesus has authority because of his moral perfection. A lot of times we don't take people's word for it or see them as an authority or trust them or think they have integrity because they say one thing and then they do something else. This is not so with Jesus. Third, Jesus has authority because he has authority over the spiritual world. The demons even knew this is Jesus, the son of God. He has authority over angels and demons and the spiritual world. And lastly, he has authority because he has authority over the physical world. Jesus was fully man. He touched lepers. He raised up Simon's mother-in-law from the dead. He was physical, but he was also fully God. He brought people back from the dead. He restored people to their past state and even better to a future state, a resurrection power state. And then... Even though he was morally perfect, even though he always did the will of the Father, he was hung on a cross. He was killed. But then he rose from the grave, showing that he's fully God, but also fully man. He rose in a body. So Jesus has authority. We're going to continue to see that as we go through Mark. Next, Jesus touches the unclean. Jesus touches the unclean. This is good news. This is the good news of the gospel. This is what the good news means. He touches the unclean. This is good news for you and me because we may not have physical leprosy, but we are infected with sin our own self-orientation, our own desire to be the boss, our own desire to go our own way, we are unclean. Even if the idea of sin and law and God is a foreign concept to you or maybe even something you don't believe is true, we don't live up to our own standards. 
We don't live up to the standards and expectations of other people or of society. And then we hear about a holy God and we sing about a holy God and immediately we become aware, just like Isaiah, that I am a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. Even our very best moments are tainted in sin. But Jesus touches the unclean. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John says, we have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's a lot going on in those two verses, but this is what it means when it says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, the propitiation for our sins. Imagine that you've broken the law, and you're on trial, and you're standing before the judge, you've gone through your trial, and the verdict is coming. And first, the jury reads their verdict, and they say, 12 out of 12, we are unanimous that this person is guilty. They did what it claims they did, and we believe that that is the case, that they are guilty. And then the judge says, I absolutely agree with you. I'm going to give you the maximum sentence for this crime. The prosecution says, we knew he was guilty from the beginning. The defense says, even we knew that they were guilty from the beginning. And then we, at the end of the day, say, I'm guilty, give me my consequences. And just before the gavel goes down, someone runs in and says, yes, they are guilty, but put the chains on me. That's what Jesus, our advocate, did for you and for me. We're guilty before a holy God, but Jesus, the righteous one who doesn't deserve to die, takes our place. Jesus touches the unclean, and he saves them and restores them with his resurrection power. And then Jesus calls us to follow him. Jesus calls us to follow him with all that authority given by God through his moral perfection over the spiritual world and the physical world. And then he says to Peter and to Andrew and to James and John and more, we'll see throughout the book of Mark, come follow me. And immediately they drop their nets and follow Jesus. That same Jesus says to you and me today, come follow me. And the question is, will we follow him? There are places that you are headed right now that are bad news. They're bad news. They're not gospel good news. They're not the things of God, the things of Jesus. They're bad news. There are things that you are headed towards that are bad news that you need to turn from and follow Jesus. All of us. I'm including myself in this. There are things that we are headed towards that are bad news. Likewise, there are false messiahs in our life, in our world, in our religion, in our politics that say, come follow me. And we've started following false 
messiahs. Maybe it's the false messiah of self or autonomy from God or self-effort or the law or legalism or politics or whatever it is, education, affluence, relationships, hedonism, sex, whatever it is. False messiahs have said, come follow me. And we've started to follow false messiahs that don't have any gospel good news for us. There is one with authority, there is one with compassion, and there is one with grace that touches the unclean, and he says, follow me. The question we're left with here tonight is, will you follow him today? Will you follow him today? Will you repent? Will you turn from those false messiahs and from that bad news, and will you follow the only true good news? I invite you to follow Jesus today. And I also invite you to go on this journey with us through the book of Mark. And as we do, you will see that this Jesus is worthy of following. He has the authority over heaven and earth and all eternity, time and space and everything. We even read in the New Testament that all things are made by him, through him, and for him. And he takes all that authority and he touches and cleanses lepers like you and me. He's worthy of following. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our time and our energy and our lives and our careers and our families and our relationships and everything. As we continue through Mark in the coming weeks and even months, we are going to see what this king is like, what his kingdom is like, and what he promises those who will follow him. I invite you to follow along with us by reading through the book of Mark. The most important thing is that you would hear directly from scripture and from the spirit. So I would encourage you to read through Mark with us. I would also encourage you to talk about what you're learning with other people, whether that's in a dorm Bible study, a community group, just getting together with a friend to talk about what you're learning as you read through Mark. And then we'll continue to go through this through May the 7th. So I encourage you to go on this journey, not just with us, but more importantly, with Jesus. Would you take a moment and pray with me? Father God, thank you for faithfully speaking. Thank you that you have things that you want to communicate to us. Thank you that you're a good heavenly father. Jesus, thank you for your moral perfection. Thank you, Jesus, that you have authority all, for all things and you use that authority to touch an unclean leper like me. Jesus, thank you that you are the advocate. Jesus, thank you that you are the righteous one. Jesus, thank you that you lived the perfect life that I can only aspire to. Jesus, thank you that this is just the beginning of the good news and we will continue to see what your good news is, not just for the rest of a sermon series, but for the rest of our lives and even to eternity, we will see the heights and depths of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. God, I pray that each one here would see very clearly the false messiahs and the false gospels that they have followed and believed. And they would turn 
to follow you, the one true God, the only one worthy of our lives and our worship and our following. Jesus, we pray as we go through this series that you would speak to each one and that you would show us how good you are. In Jesus' name, amen.